we are certainly fortunate to have the music that we do at First Baptist Church. Come a long way from the first church I pastored where before the service started, everybody, the, the song leader stood up and said, everybody wants to sing in the choir, come on. And they'd wander up to the front and there'd be six or seven of them. And we would sing uh, something that sounded much like a cat fight. Uh, it was, it's, we've, we've come a long way, baby. Uh, I love it. I love the music. Anna, you're right, right, right back where you belong. <laughs> Anna's, Anna's had some health issues lately and hasn't been able to be where she wants to be. Anna loves to sing, tell a story on her embarrasser. She's in the hospital and uh, getting an IV and the uh, and the Anna's not the easiest person to get an IV into, and the nurse comes in and says she's going to start poking and prodding, and is that okay? And Anna said, you poke, I'll sing. And the whole time she's going to town, Anna's singing, and when she hits just the right place, Anna would sing a little bit, and off they would go. Oh, that was cool. Just a few, few things right quick. We talk about who's your one. Uh, Easter's coming up. I want to remind you one more time about Easter. Don't forget. Don't forget that's a good time to invite people to come to church, and, uh, and if you think, well, all we're thinking about is numbers and all that, you think whatever you want to. I'm not in control of your thoughts, but what I am in control of is, is letting you know as your pastor, there's a lot of folks out there that need Jesus, and all you got to do is drop a little invite on them, and sometimes they'll show up. Last thing I want to remind you of, the, the, on the outside wall, as you exit through the main door, this door, turn to your left, and there's envelopes on this wall that have numbers on the envelopes. That's for our fundraiser for camp that we do every year. The envelope, the number on the envelope is the amount of money that we would like for you to put back into that envelope. If we got every envelope back, we just about pay for camp for a lot of folks. It's, it's really a, a good thing. The envelope's been going a little bit slow this year. I guess the, the, your, uh, someone told me your tax refunds haven't quite come in yet. Get an envelope in anticipation, if you would. They're on the door. As you go out here, it's real easy for you guys. As you just go to the right, just grab, close your eyes and grab, and then see what you get. It's, the 170s are good. All right. Um, if, you've, if you've ever had a boss, if you've, ever, if, you've, if you've ever had a boss, you understand that it is not a smart thing to not do what your boss tells you to. Unless your daddy is the CEO of the organization and he thinks that you hung the sun, moon, and stars, in that case, you might get away with not doing what the boss told you to do. But even then, you might be in trouble. When a boss, when you work for somebody and they tell you what to do, chances are really good you ought to do it. If you don't, things aren't going to turn out right. I got a great illustration of that. When I was at Bell South, my boss, hello there. When my boss, um, my boss, my boss's boss, the lady that, that we worked for, she was an AVP, and uh, she, she was a little grouchy and a little hard to get along with, but she was a boss, you know, and she tells you what to do, you have to do it. And because she had the position that she had, she's doing a little cost you know, cost-saving things, and she eliminated some positions. She wasn't picking on our office. She did this across the board, eliminated this position everywhere. Well, that made it difficult on my boss because my boss depended on that position to take care of a lot of his work. So he was going to have to work a whole lot harder. So he sat down and he got to thinking, i tell you what I'm going to do. If I do it this way and this way and this way, I can still have the position. She'll never know it. Y'all hear the problem, right? She'll never know it, and life will be good. So he created the position, and he gave it to me. He, 
That was good. So I thought it was pretty cool. I had, you know, a job, and I'm doing the job and everything. And then one day she comes down, and she finds out what's going on. She gave him the opportunity to move into another job. And he stayed in that job until he retired. That was the whole point. You're not going to mess with me. I'm the boss. Go away. And then she said, and that position goes away. It's done. Well, that's a little bit of a problem, see, because that's my job. So I get an opportunity to drive an hour away down to Eastman, Georgia every day to go to work because this is what happened. And I was annoyed, right? Should have been annoyed. And I went to my old boss and I was griping about it. And he said to me these words. He said, Randy, it's a year, son. It's not a career. It's a year. It's not a career. Now, y'all have heard that same statement in little different words when it comes to life. Life is a marathon, not a sprint, right? Life is a marathon, not a sprint. We are in Philippians chapter 3, verses 12 through 21. You could sum up Philippians 3. Y'all go ahead and get it out. I'm not going to read through it. We're going to break it down a little bit at a time. It is good stuff. It is very good stuff. Philippians 3, 12 through, 12 through 21 and what we could sum that up to say is this, life is a marathon, not a sprint. Run it well. Write that down, we could go home. Life is a marathon, not a sprint. Run it well. But Paul lays out so much good stuff in here that if we left right now, we would be losing some of the best stuff that he has said to us. He starts in verse 12 and he says, not that I have already reached the goal. Now, if you were here last week or you listened to the sermon on our YouTube channel or on our podcast, you would, you would have heard that Paul basically tells us that, you know, my past is gone and, and this is what the future is and this is who I am. And you're listening to this. I don't know if you've ever listened to a motivational speecher, speaker that just got you so fired up that you're sitting there listening to this guy and you're going, this is great, this is great, tell me how, tell me how, tell me how. That's the way you are in, in the verses from last week. Paul's telling you and you're going, I want to know how to do this. And then he gets to the part where he's supposed to tell us how to do this. And he says, but I got bad news for you guys. I, I don't, I, I, I've not gotten there yet. What? I've not reached the goal yet. I'm not there yet. Folks, I haven't arrived yet. I haven't taken hold of the goal. I've not reached the finish line. Now, just a little aside so you understand. Many of you have studied Paul before in your life. In Sunday school, you understand this may be new to some of you. Paul likes to use the analogy of an athletic contest. He loves to use the analogy of a race. When you read through Paul's letters, you'll find several times that he does that very thing, that he talks about life as a race, and you'll see it over and over and over again. That's what he's doing right here, talking about life as being a race. Not that I've already reached the goal or am already perfect. I know you think I'm the man, Paul's saying. I know you think I'm the man, but I know me. I know me and I know who I am, and I'm not there yet. I've got a ways to go. I've got things to do. Not that I've already reached the goal or am already perfect, but I make every effort to take hold of it because I have also been taken hold of by Christ Jesus. Now, if you look down to verse 14 right quick, you'll see the word there, I pursue. You look back to verse 12 and you see, I make every effort. That's exactly the same word in Greek. They just translate a little different to make it read better. But the point there is, is I pursue. I pursue. Folks, 
You, to pursue something means you get up off your chair and you go after it and you put effort into it. When you hear what Paul's saying here, you hear him saying that I put effort into this. I work hard at it. I hear people all the time will say something like, I wish I was a better Christian. I wish I could do better. I wish I could do. Let me ask you a question. How hard do you pursue it? How hard do you pursue it? Are you expecting it just to fall down on you from on high and everything's going to be fine? I got bad news for you. The game don't work that way. We pursue. We have a goal. We work for that goal. I watch you guys. You put on Facebook uh, pictures of your kids when you do sports, when they do sports stuff. And uh, Jean Phillips is an amateur photographer. She takes lots and lots of pictures. She loves to take sports pictures of her kids that play soccer. She posted a picture up the other day of Holt and Dylan on the side. It was during a soccer game, and the, the camera angle got Holt just right, that I could see that Holt's hair was matted down to his body. He was wringing wet with sweat. But I knew it was cold outside, number one, because I'd been outside, and number two, because in that picture, she captured his cheeks were flaming red. Your cheeks get flaming red when you're running real hard outside in cold weather, playing a game as hard as you can possibly play. That's what Paul's talking about, pursue here. That's pursuing. You are going after something. You're putting everything you've got into this because you want what is at the end of this. Do you want, church, do you want what is at the end of this life? Do you want what God's promised? Do you want that glorious appearing? Do you want to see him? Then pursue that. Make that your number one calling. That's your number one goal. Everything else is going to fall under it. Pursuing that. Even if you don't like sports, you understand this analogy. Every game has a beginning. Every game has an ending. And there's always a winner. Let me help you understand something. Don't ask me to play in a game where you're going to go, no, listen, we're just here so we can all have fun. We don't care who wins or loses. Let me help you understand something real quick. I care who wins and loses. I want to be the gracious winner. I want to be the guy that walks off the field and says, hey, Daryl, you played a great game, buddy. That was great, but I kicked your fanny. That's what I did. I won't say it out loud because I'm a gracious winner. I want to win. Paul is saying that in our Christian life, we've got to want to win. It doesn't fall as manna from heaven on you. Yes, we're saved and we go through all that stuff, but he's saying right here, pursue this. I pursue this goal. I am working hard, as hard as I can, to attain what Christ has laid out in front of me. This is work. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider I do not reckon, I do not count, I do not pretend that the scoreboard shows that the game is over and that I've won it and I'm just sitting here reveling until the day that Jesus calls me home. I don't do that. I do not consider myself taking hold of it. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind. Now we're going to talk about something. We're going to talk about forgetting, but we're going to talk about it sort of a two-pronged kind of thing here. I want to ask you a question. Don't answer it. Don't answer it because there's potential. It's a trick question, and it's potentially you could embarrass yourself. Where do you find in the Bible the phrase, forgive and forget? Where do you find in the Bible the phrase, forgive and forget? You don't because it's not in there. 
Well, Randy, I know good and well. I tell you what, you go home and search like I searched. And if you find it, point out to me. And I'll stand up here beside you and let you humiliate me in front of everybody and say, well, I found it at 1 Randy Darnell, chapter 3, verse 1. It ain't in the book. See, forgive and forget started as a parable back in the 1300s. Miguel de Cervantes, in his story, The Man of La Mancha, Don Quixote, Man of La Mancha, used this phrase. He used the phrase that says, let us forgive and forget injuries. Shakespeare used it again in King Lear just a couple of years after that. Forgive and forget is not in the Bible. There's probably a good reason for that. Let's talk about what forgetting means. See, we think that forgetting means that you don't remember. Simple enough, right? See, I can give you a great illustration of what it means to forget something. If I have ever introduced myself to you, you know, if you were new, if you haven't been around for a thousand years like I have, that I will introduce myself again to you later because I forget. I want to help y'all as church members to do, and I, imitate me. As Paul says, imitate me. When you see somebody that you don't recognize, introduce yourself to them. And if they're a member for 25 years and you're introducing yourself to them, it's okay. They'll get over it and so will you. If you find out that you actually went to the hospital and visited them a couple of years ago and sat down and talked with them for a while face to face and you've forgotten it, you'll live through that too. I promise because I have. That's forgetting. I tell you, if I introduce myself to you and I walk away and I take two breaths, the first breath made it shadowy, the second breath blew it away. That's forgetting. And we think that when Paul talks about forgetting and when we talk about forgiving and forgetting, that what we're talking about is making all of that, all poof, it's gone. That is not what the word forget means here. It is not what this word means. The word forget here, the word forget here means is that I don't care about it anymore. Because, see, you're going to remember it. You can't stop yourself from remembering it. In fact, I believe with all of my heart that sometimes the evil one will sort of sneak up on you a little bit and whisper it into your ear because he wants you distracted. He wants you to get mad. He wants, your aim. He wants you to be hurt again. He wants you to cry again. He wants you to, to dwell on it one more time. And what Paul's talking about, when Paul talks about forgetting, he says, listen, I don't care about it anymore. I don't care about it. I remember it. Sure, I remember it. But I don't care about it anymore. It doesn't have an impact on my life. It's over. It's done. It doesn't matter. See, here's the deal that we have to keep reminding ourselves of. God is sovereign. That means he's in control of everything. He allowed your past to occur. He's in control. He could have stopped your past if he wanted to. He could have changed anything he wanted to, but he didn't. He allowed your past to occur. Why did he do that? Romans 8, 29, those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. He wants you to be like Jesus. And when we're his child, he takes all of our past. He, when we're a Christian, he takes all of our past. The past is redeemed. It's washed in the blood of Christ. He uses every bit of that to make us more and more like Jesus. He doesn't say forget it. As in, poof, it's gone. He's saying, I don't care about this stuff anymore. Whether it's the greatest thing in the world, whether it's the worst thing in the world, it makes absolutely no difference to me. My past is redeemed by the blood of Jesus. I moved on. I don't care anymore. 
I don't care anymore. You might care. You might hold it against me. That's your problem, not mine. I don't care. I've been forgiven, washed in the blood of the Lamb. You see in the context of saying forgive and forget that this actually works. I forgive you. I'm going to remember what you did. Depending on how bad it was, maybe the hurt or pain will last and stay with me forever for the rest of my life. The, the, the memory of that event will. But when it comes up, I don't have to revel in that hurt and I don't have to revel in that pain. I don't have to wear it again. What I need to do is lean back and go, you know what? That doesn't matter to me anymore because it was nailed to the cross with Jesus. His blood covers it. It doesn't matter to me. Lord, help me. I'm moving on. I'm moving on. That's what it means to no longer care. Paul says, forgetting what is behind Folks, we have a lot of stuff behind us, don't we? We have a lot of stuff behind us. I've been in a very nostalgic mood lately. I don't know if I mentioned it to y'all last week or not because I think it happened last week. Um, I'm, a, I'm a member of a Facebook group, the South Cobb High School alumni. I graduated from South Cobb High School in Austell, Georgia in 1974. Go War Eagles. And uh, I had Mr. Cribb for trigonometry. Uh, Mr. Cribb passed away. Just as an aside for all of you school teachers, I don't care how old you are, you are still old lady or old man so-and-so. Let me help you understand. Mr. Cribb passed away. They put his age up there when he died, you know, how old he was when he died. I did the math. When I had him, it was old man Cribb. He was about 33 years old. <laughs> old man Cribb. Yeah, he was 33. I'd love to see 33 again. They were writing all these great things about Mr. Cribb. I couldn't, I couldn't join in that conversation. It made me sad that he passed, and I said so. But Mr. Cribb had this thing that drove me crazy. He was ambidextrous. And what he did is we had blackboards. Y'all remember blackboards. Some of you young people may not have a clue what a blackboard is, but they're, they're actually boards that are black. And you would use chalk to write on said blackboard. Well, the greatest thing in the world was get to clean the erasers outside because you'd get to miss some class. But anyway, he would stand in the middle of the board and he'd take the chalk in his left hand and he would write. And he'd write uphill till they got to the middle and then he'd change hands. And then he'd write downhill and then he'd swap. And he'd do it again and he'd do it again. And see, my mind has trouble with mathematics. And instead of me thinking about what he's writing, I'm going, look at him right uphill. Look at him right downhill. He's swapping hands. Look at him. I didn't learn anything from that man. I tell you, I did not. Trig was not. But the point of my story is not about Mr. Mr. Cribb was a good guy. A lot of people posted he was the best math teacher they ever had. God bless them because I didn't, I didn't get it. But the point was is all of the comments that the folks made about his passing, my friends were posting things. These were people that I hung out with people that I went to school with, people that I had really good memories with. Made me feel sort of nostalgic, you know. One of the things about getting older, I've, I've mentioned this, I've probably mentioned a million times because to me it's one of the saddest things. I can't play ball anymore. The, the smell of a leather glove, feeling the ball pop into your hand, hearing when you swing the bat, if you get it just right, you know what the sound is that you hit the sweet spot and you know that it's a double. At very least, it's a double. You might get more out of it because you heard the sound coming off your bat. 
all the guys I played with, Jeff and Ben and all of those guys that we hung around with, thinking about all of those guys and, and how much we meant to each other and the championship games we played in and all this stuff. You know, you get that warm, fuzzy feeling inside, but then you get to thinking, if you, if you dwell long enough, for every championship game I played in, that was a great thing, I thought, I did something equally boneheaded. You know? If I think long enough, I can remember that I did some things that, that you know, we told Anna, Ben, and Luke to, to, to recognize stupid and not do it. Well, I recognized stupid, shook hands with it, kissed it on the cheek, and then went walking down the street with it. I did it. That's my past. You're no different than I am. You've got the same thing. And, and as, as Paul talks about our past here, maybe you've got a glorious past that you never did anything wrong, which would be a lie, but you never did anything wrong in the world. He still, as we look back on all of this stuff, he says we look at it and realize that it doesn't, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. The past, forgetting what is behind. Why is the past not our ruler. Have y'all met people that live in the past that can't get out? They're trapped in it. Don't you feel sorry for them? And look at us. Sometimes we let those things in the past eat at us and eat at us and eat at us. And, and Paul's saying, this doesn't rule you. It's not your ruler. Why is it not? He says, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and reaching forward to what is ahead, I pursue as my goal that thing at the end of the race, the finish line way off in the distance, it seems to us. I pursue as my goal the prize promised by God's heavenly call in Christ Jesus. Who made the call? You? No, his call. The prize that's offered to me is promised by God's heavenly call. You go back to verse 12, he says, I've also, also been taken hold of by Christ. The past is not our ruler because we've been taken hold of by Christ. We've been taken hold of by Christ. The call to run the race is not a call that you did you're on your own. He took hold of you and pulled you into the race. Have you ever had anybody volunteer you for something? And you'd like to kill them half the time because I didn't, if I'd wanted to do it, I'd volunteered myself. But now I'm stuck doing this thing. He volunteered you. He took hold of you and pulled you into the race. If you get nothing else today, get this. Your past doesn't matter because of Christ. Your past doesn't matter. And listen, you, you might say to me, I had somebody, you know, pe preachers, preachers always say this kind of thing. You know why we always say this kind of thing? Because people say it to us. I literally had somebody say to me, but pastor, you don't know what my past is. To which I reply, you don't know my Jesus. Because let me share something with you. You have got nothing that he cannot cover. He is the almighty God. He, has, he is fully human, fully divine, infinite, eternal. His power has no limits at all. You might think that you've done things that could never be forgiven. You're telling the man who created you that you're more powerful than him. Do you think for a minute... That Jesus hung on the cross, and while he was hanging there, he thought to himself, well, I sure hope old Bob don't do crack one day because my blood can't cover it when he does crack. 
Ooh, I sure hope old Francine don't sleep with her boyfriend because if she sleeps with a boyfriend, Lord have mercy, my blood won't cover that. I sure hope that old Tom doesn't sacrifice his wife and his kids so he can have a six-figure salary and have a chick on the side somewhere. Ooh, my blood won't cover that. You get the idea, right? He wasn't hanging on the cross saying, I hope they don't do this because if they do, they're going to be lost for all eternity. He's hanging on the cross. The wrath of God's being poured out on him for every sin that we've ever committed. He is graciously accepting all of that into himself, pinning it onto the cross, dying and being placed in the grave so everything that you have done is gone. Do you understand me? I am telling you, he is saying that the past has no control over you. If you're living in the past, get out of it. It doesn't matter. He redeemed it. He is making you new. He has designed and created everything that is. He gets to call the shots. He designed life to be lived in a certain way. And when it's lived that way, that joy that Paul talks about, the rejoicing that Paul talks about, the contentment that we said that rejoicing means, all of that is ours in Christ Jesus. And when we step outside of it, when we step outside of it, that's where, that's where it all falls apart. But all those things that we've done, they get in the way and make us want to step outside and Paul says, because of Jesus, those things don't matter anymore. You might remember them. I may torment myself about them over and over, but it's all unnecessary because the blood of Jesus covers them all. In Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 through 15, Paul says, And when you were dead in your trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive with him and forgave us all our trespasses. He erased the certificate of debt with its obligations that was against us and opposed to us and has taken it away by nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and disgraced them publicly. Your enemies, he disgraced them publicly. He triumphed over them in him. You have got nothing that he can't cover. It's gone. It doesn't matter anymore. Therefore, he says, therefore, let all of us who are mature think this way. You know what the Greek word for mature is? What, what, the, what the Greek word mature means? It means mature. There's nothing more to it than that. It means mature. mature. It means you know. It means you understand. It means that you're sophisticated, that you're aware. Paul says, let us all understand this this way. What is behind me, I don't care. God has redeemed it for my good. He's making me like Jesus. He's issued a heavenly call for me to pursue for my entire life. He's cheering me on as I run the race. And I love this because y'all know I can't help myself. I do my best. I really do bite my tongue every now and then. But I got a little smart alecky streak in me and Paul's got a little smart alecky streak in him and I love it when it pops out and it pops out right here. Because see, Paul says to us, let all of us who are mature think this way and if you think differently about anything, God will reveal this to you too. In other words, what he's saying is, if you don't like what I'm teaching, <laughs> you're wrong, God will show you, hang on tight, you'll see. I like that. 
I like that a lot. Y'all know I've said before, I'm right, you know, and yeah, yeah, Paul just did the same thing I did. I learned from the master. But I love what he's saying here. If you don't think like I'm teaching, you're wrong. God's going to show you. And then he says one of the greatest things that I've discovered lately. In the next verse, he says, in any case, whether you agree with me or not, essentially whether you believe I'm correct or you still have some growing up to do, in any case, we should live up to whatever truth that we've attained. In other words, what he's saying is this, do the best you can with what you got. Do the best you can with what you've got. Don't worry about what you don't know. Don't worry about your past. Do the best you can with what you've got. He's not going to hold us accountable. He's not going to hold us accountable for things that we don't know yet. He's not worried about that. He's saying simply, what you know, do the best you can, run the race as hard as you can, knowing what you know right this minute, do the best you can, don't worry about the past and what you don't know yet. It's a marathon, it's not a sprint. Learn as you go and pay attention to the coaches. He's what he's saying here. Because his next thing he says, join in imitating me, brothers and sisters. Join in imitating me. Do the best you can. Do the best you can. But you look around and you find you somebody who is running the race like you know it's supposed to be run. You don't have to walk up to them and say, will you be my mentor? Will you be my accountability partner? It's not wrong to do that, but you don't have to do it. But you watch them and you watch how they live and you imitate how they live. And there's some godly people in this church that we can imitate, that we can see and want to be like them when we grow up, no matter how old we are. We can watch these folks. Paul's saying, you do that. Join in imitating me, he says. That sounds a little bit arrogant, don't it? You know, I'm the man, so watch me. Y'all pay attention to me. I'll do it right, and then maybe you'll catch up some point. But I want you to think about something. Anybody that's a teacher says the same thing. Anybody that's a teacher says exactly the same thing. If you stand up in your job and teach other people how to do something, you are doing the same exact thing. If you stand up in a classroom, if you're a Sunday school teacher, a small group leader, a public school teacher, private school teacher, a pastor, if we are standing up in front of people teaching, we are saying join in, 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 in imitating me. And if you're saying, no, I didn't sign up for that, you have two choices. First choice is quit because the old do as I say but don't do as I do routine that I heard when I was growing up is nonsense. If you're going to be a teacher, live the part. And the second thing that you can do is repent. Realize that when you stand up as an authority, all eyes are on you. You're a coach. Be a good example. Well, I didn't sign up to be an example. It doesn't matter what you signed up to be. It's what you are. Be a good example. And Paul says, look for people like him and let their lives coach you. First time I picked up a ball and threw it, y'all know it didn't go where it was supposed to go. It didn't go far and it went the wrong direction. 
But over the years, I practiced and I practiced. I pursued a goal. I had a goal when I played ball that one day if I played in the outfield that somebody would be rounding third and I would throw the ball home, perfect throw, catcher would catch it, perfect place, tag the guy out, and I would be in the outfield going, look what I did. And I practiced and I pursued that goal and I had coaches that say, do it again, do it again, do it again. Do it again. Randy, you're doing this wrong. Randy, think about this. Randy, do that. And I got to play in a game where I was in the outfield and the guy was rounding third base. My cutoff man wasn't in the right place. I threw the ball on line, perfect from center field, landed in the catcher's glove. He tagged the guy out, and I'm here to brag about it today. Why? Because I pursued the goal, and I listened to my coaches. I, don't, I couldn't have done that by myself. These guys saw flaws, saw things in me. You need to change this. You need to work on this. You need to do. Paul's telling us the same thing here. Find people who know how to live a godly life. Imitate them. Talk to them. Learn from these folks. Paul says, look for people like him. Let their lives coach you. You can read verses 18 through 20 when you get home, but essentially Paul says this. He reminds us that there are folks who will not choose to hear Christ. They will not choose to follow him. They're self-centered. They will always be self-centered, and in the end, they will reap their reward, which is destruction. But for the rest of us who will breathe deep and swallow hard and can take that first step and say, I have decided to follow Jesus, Paul says, he he, being God the Father, will transform the body of our humble condition into the likeness of his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject everything to himself. One of, Paul's main, one of Jesus' main disciples, John, said this, Dear friends, we're God's children now, and what we will be has not yet been revealed. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him as he is. That's a promise. That's the goal. That's where we're going. That's what we're pursuing. That's what we're after. That's what we have to keep at the forefront of our minds, no matter what we're doing, no matter where we're going, no matter who we're with, that I will be called upward to Jesus Christ because he has taken hold of me. I'm going to work the best I can with what I've got as hard as I can because one day he's going to welcome me home. One day I'm going to see him and we're going to be just alike. I'm going to be in a glorified body just as he is. I will walk into heaven with Jesus. That's going to happen. That's going to happen. It is a promise. Let go of your past. He can save you. He can wash it away. Listen, this is what I want you to think about this morning. What I want you to understand is there is only one who can wash away your sins. You know that when you stand Beside the Ten Commandments, just start with the Ten Commandments. You know, the whole purpose of them is not to show you how to live, it's to show you that you can't live that way. The whole purpose of them is to help you know, Paul says, I wouldn't know what coveting was until I read, Thou shalt not covet, and now all I can do is covet. And that's the way it works. When somebody tells you not to do something, the first thing you want to do is what they told you not to do. And the Ten Commandments are laid out saying, this is the nature of God. This is who he is. This is how he operates. Now look at yourself. And we realize that, oh my goodness, I can't do it. I fall short. I can never be who I need to be. I can't do it. God said, I know that. Therefore, I'm sending my son 
will die on a cross, that if you will believe that he has done this for you, that if you will follow him for the rest of your life, I will make you brand new, I'll wash you from your sins, and I will give you a glory that you cannot imagine. This morning I want to invite you to accept that if you've never done it before, to trust Christ if you've never done it before. And church member, I know, I know, I know, I know, I know that many of us are going through things that seem like they are the worst, most horrible things that's ever happened, and maybe they are the worst, most horrible things. But you know, God's still in control of this too. And God's going to use that to help us to be more like Jesus. And it may be that your loved one is walking the path and it's the last few steps before they go home. In short order, that loved one that we, we are so concerned about and hurt for will stand in the presence of Jesus and they will see him like he is. What a promise we've got there. That's why we want everybody to know. We want them to meet him in all of his glory. I'm going to do something a little different this morning. I've never done this before that I can ever remember. Of course, I forget stuff, remember? I told you that. Y'all stand with me if you would. Ask Logan and Kim to come on up. I want to ask you this morning, just take a few minutes. We'll do our invitation just a little bit differently. I want to ask you the old Baptist thing. Everybody bow your heads. Every, every head bowed, every eye closed. Every head bow, every eye closed. And listen, it's, it's, it's invitation time. I know that some of you need to get out in front of the crowd. It makes it easier and all that. Try not to do that today. Y'all hang on just a few minutes. Every head bowed, every eye closed. If you've got something happening in your life right now, maybe it's old thing in the past that's haunting you, or there's trouble at home or in, in your job, or there's pain because of a loved one, something's happening to a loved one. If you would like us to pray for them this morning, maybe it's you that's got the issue. I ask you just lift your hand real quick. Just hold your hand up. Thank you very much. Hold your hands up and you can let them back down again. And we will pray specifically for you. Now I want to ask you, thank you, I want to ask you if you have never followed Christ, but you feel him tearing in your heart, tugging and telling you. And it has been such a terrifying thing for you to, to, to think about having to step out of a pew and walking in front of people. I want to ask you right now, if you want to trust Christ as your Savior, would you lift your hand? Would you just lift your hand up real quietly so nobody can see it or feel it? Just lift your hand up. Okay. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. I want you, I want to ask you, uh, anybody that lifted their hand for salvation, before you go, tell somebody. Tell somebody and, and, and they'll know what to do. They'll know to get you to me or Daniel standing at the back or to Logan. We'll talk to you. Um, but, but tell somebody that you want Jesus in your life. And Father, this morning we pray. All of those hands that have been lifted this morning, you are the God over all of them. Father, all the people in here that raised their hand for prayer, Lord, it's exactly what I expected. Hands all over the room. There are people here who are crying out to you for deliverance, who are crying out for you to, to, to bring mercy, to help them experience grace in such a way, Father, that they can walk away relieved.
There's hurt in families. There's, there's fear because of our own physical con condition. Lord, as we get older and, and we can't play ball anymore, it causes us to, to question ourselves. I pray that you, you be with us in those situations. Lord, we've got folks that are in the hospital. We have folks that, that are dying, that their time is coming and we know the clock is ticking. And we know for some of them it's, it's very soon. Father, first we pray, grant them mercy. Lord, take them quickly. And if they are not Christian, Father, please open their eyes in the minutes that they have left to the glories of Jesus Christ, that they would receive him as Savior and be saved. They don't have to be a Christian for a million years. The thief on the, on the cross only had minutes left in his life. And you told him that he would see you in paradise. Please, Father. Oh, Father, lay your hands on my friends and family in this church whose heart aches so badly. And Lord, for the hands that come up for salvation, I pray that you give them the courage to take that step. Lord, and, and when they take that first step, I pray it will be like the wings of angels work in their heart, Father. And from that moment on, they know and they go and they follow you joyfully having that peace that passes all understanding. And it really does. Father, we love you so much. Father, I pray a special prayer for those that have been attending church here for a long time but have, have never made a commitment to First Baptist Church. I pray, Father, that you would call them and let them know that they need to belong a lot of people say that church membership doesn't mean anything, but Father, you tell us not to, not to forsake coming together, being part of a body. I pray that you would call them out to become a part and to, and to move in your house. Maybe, Lord, you lift them up as people that we look up to, to imitate. Father, we thank you so much. We thank you for all you've done in this place. You have been so good to First Baptist Church and you have been so good to each one of us and you have been so good to me. We thank you, Father. As we sing this song, respond as God would have you to sing.